Welcome to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. To everybody joining us, get tucked in because we're going to talk about music for the next 45 minutes and just live in joy. Uh, That's kind of what we're about. Um, And today we're borrowing from another project that seeks to do the same thing, focusing on joy, memory, and roots. Uh, And that's the Adolescentia Project, started by Mary Beth Ray and Carrie Teresa. Uh, It's an oral archive of albums that help define people. The albums that at 14, quote, give the courage to become who we are and act as a love letter to our 14-year-old selves. Uh, navigating the stress, uncertainty, and excitement of adolescence. And I don't know about you, but there was definitely uncertainty, anxiety, and stress as a 14-year-old adolescent. But at the same time, I'm thinking about like 14 is like my lived experience and it being a pretty big year in kind of all of the transitions that were like shaping me at the time. And music was just one of those ways of really filtering that experience and trying to figure out who we are as people uh, and gravitating towards music that spoke to that, that amplified that, that helped us figure out words or or feelings, um, while also potentially giving us the opportunity to find communities, find others who were responding to the world in the same way that we were, going to concerts or shows and meeting people or building like fan communities in some form or way. So this is a way for us to like go back to 14 year old us and say, Thank you. So with that being said, um, I'm going to get started in this conversation with three faculty members from Drexel who have agreed to share uh, their 14-year-old selves with us today. This is like an all-star team of people who have contributed greatly to the fabric of the Honors College. So just a general thank you for like all the work that you've done and also spending time with us to talk about your album. So we have Johnson Miller from the History Department, Denise Augusto from uh, Information Science, and Sheila Sandipan from English. Well, I want to go and just start with everybody saying what your album is and if you remember how you found it. Sheila, what is your album? So my album is Synchronicity by The Police. And actually, it was a birthday gift. Oh, from who? My parents. Oh, cool parents. must be exactly my age that came out the year I was 14. It's interesting reliving the whole 14 through music again because I have a 14 year old (laughs) and my chemical romance is really big right now with the 14 year old and I'm just like you know what we had the Smiths. (laughs) We had this whole discussion the other day how I cannot be emo because the Smiths weren't emo. They just were the precursor. I guess if you're into like categories, but... 14-year-olds would never be into categories, would they? No, they're not at all. Lord knows it would be the first time I was tempted, but I thought, well, strictly speaking, that was a little bit after 14 for me. 
So I was, I was trying to think, okay, 14, what was really going on? I feel like with this project, I don't know about you all, but there was a tension as I was thinking about my 14 year old album between like what I wish I had listened to, like what I had discovered later in life that was like around the time I was 14. I was like, man, that would have been so cool if I would have, if I would have done that, but having to be honest with myself about who I was. Sure. I wanted to be a little bit cooler. I didn't know if, if, if synchronicity was too mainstream and people would be like, you know, but it was kind of interesting. But I decided to honor that 14-year-old self. Good for you. I was trying to decide between that and the one I chose, so I'm so glad I went Oh, Denise, what did you choose? Mine is The Singles, 1969 to 1973 by The Carpenters. Okay. My mother bought it when I was just a toddler. And after a couple of years, I went into her vinyl cabinet and took it and moved it into my room and it became mine. <laughs> did she know that you did that or was that just your... I think she noticed. She played it for years. She got tired of it, but I never did. Those were such happy times and not so long ago. How I wondered where they'd gone But they're back again Just like a long lost friend All the songs I love so well Every sha-la-la-la Every woe still shines It's funny how that works out how, yeah, how your parents' collection slowly but surely moves into your collection, whether they recognize it or not. Everybody's blushing on my behalf. <laughs> it's, I love it. I love okay. it so much. I'm so excited. But synchronicity is also and remains very important to me. Okay. Um, Johnson? Mine is uh, Big Lizard in My Backyard by the Dead Milkmen, which came out in 1985. Okay, okay. Ooh, very likely nice. never heard of it. Well, no, um, I've heard of the Milkmen. Okay. <laughs> hey, Jack, what's happening? I don't know. Well, uh, rumor around town says you might be thinking about going down to the shore. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go down to the shore. What are you going to do down there? Uh, I don't know. Play some video games, buy some Def Leppard t-shirts. Don't forget your Motley Crue t-shirt. You know, all proceeds go to get their lead singer out of jail. Uh-huh. I think it was a friend of my brother's had it, and it was just not something he was interested in. And so passed it along to me, and it blew my mind. I feel like there are several albums of that where somebody was like, not interested or over it. And then they were like, do you want it? And I was like, I guess, okay, fine. And then it just like blew my world up in a weird way. There's... There's a couple of albums like that, so that's really exciting to hear. One day, you'll be cool. Look under your bed, it'll set you free. Johnson, can you start us by talking about what your 14-year-old self loved about that Dead Milkman album? Yeah, so uh, to that point, I had been listening exclusively and rigidly to, um, to heavy metal. And I had, I was like almost like contemptuous of, uh, of other forms of music. And I had a very narrow sense of what music could or should be. And then I heard this album, which was this sort of absurdist punk. Um, it was goofy and satirical. And, and it just blew my mind as to what music could be like. and just busted me out of that, uh, that rigidity, while at the same time it was addressing the, that sort of um, 
white working class anger and alienation that heavy metal at the time did. Um, so it addressed those things, but in a way that seemed like life could also be joyful and fun and unpretentious. about because then it's a weird album in terms of like combining like it's somewhat rockabilly but then there's also some like classic punk ska uh tone techniques thinking about that in conversation with something like the police where you also hear all of this like synchronicity and joy Sheila can you talk about synchronicity in terms of what you loved about it at the time was it kind of the same or not the same sure so the worst thing ever happened to me when I was 13. My parents left England and they moved to the United States. But I grew up in North London and, you know, initially I thought this was going to be an amazing thing. Then I got here and I didn't have friends and I didn't know anyone and I couldn't go anywhere because there isn't this wonderful, fantastic public system of transportation. And also we moved in May. So when you're in England, school goes through since July. When you come here in May, they tell you, well, you have to wait until September. So there was this period of isolation where I kept questioning, what am I doing here? And so strangely enough, the police, so it was a gift, but I had requested it. It was my way of connecting because at the same time in the early 80s, you have Margaret Thatcher and you have the struggle of the working class. And as immigrants, because my parents originally immigrated from Mauritius to London and then they came here, um, we were never, you know, living it high. And so we were, we were labor people, you know, we were the people who were anti-Thatcher. And of course, I was parroting my father's political views, but in some ways... The police, even though it's named after establishment that was sort of, you know, part of the problem, was um, was a way to connect with home because I did, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. I couldn't Skype, so I would have to write a letter, put it in the mail, wait two weeks for a response from one of my friends. So that album, with its crazy tracks, you know, mother of being a little off there. And then that, that angst of King of Pain, you know, there's a spot in the sun and that's my soul up there. That was me. I really, it was, it was what kept my angst going, but it also affirmed that I wasn't as alone as I thought I was. There's a little black spot. Just happened to be sitting next to me. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, my copy, by the way, my vinyl copy of Synchronicity is at the basement. I have it on vinyl, I have it on tape, and I also have it on a CD and MP3. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and yeah, I don't really feel like the police get credit for that type of like kind of connecting with the time. I feel like it's always um, 
you know, Don't Stand Too Close to Me or Roxanne. I mean, you hear these hits that just kind of get co-opted from the time, but thinking about how they were combining sounds um, and kind of tapping into these like aspects of culture uh, that were like connecting and disconnecting at the same time. it's I I think they get a short shrift Denise but the Carpenters are not necessarily known for their politics or their political you know fortuitousness um what was it that though that resonated for you as like a 14 year old especially as like discovering it in your collection I think in order to explain why it had such a big impact on me we have to place the album and the Carpenters themselves in historical context Most people my age would say that there were two really big events in music history that stick out in their minds, where everybody knows where they were and what they're doing when they heard the news. 1977, Elvis died. Most people know my age know exactly where they were and what they were doing. I have no idea and I don't remember. I only knew that my dad liked Elvis. I didn't know his music. Then there's 1980, John Lennon. Again, most people say, oh, I know where I was when I heard that John Lennon was shot. Me, I have no idea whatsoever. What I do remember is 1983, Karen Carpenter died. It was two weeks before my 14th birthday. I was in gym class. I had just put on that dreadful white polyester gym outfit we had to wear in the 1980s with the way too short navy blue shorts that no matter how hard you pulled at them, they were still just too short. I still remember I was reaching down to tie my tennis shoe and I heard someone say, Karen Carpenter died. And and I was just devastated because that was my childhood. I'd been listening to just one album of theirs for over 10 years, as long as I could remember. And I found out that day that she died of anorexia. So for me, I loved the album because it represented childhood and that smack, that emotional hit of finding out that day, that the music, which is so happy, it represents a sanitized, clean, innocent view of the world. It was really covering up a much deeper and darker reality for the two people in the band, Karen Carpenter and her brother, Richard Carpenter. So my love of the album is combined with my childhood adoration of these sweet, sincere lyrics with a deeper understanding of what was really going on in the world. And the reason is clear, it's because you are here, you're the nearest thing to heaven that I've seen. sincerity is so important because I feel like at 14 sincerity is not happening uh that there is a lot of posturing or a lot of anxiety in the in being sincere or in putting yourself out there um and so I think it's really interesting that both Denise and Sheila you were talking about this like in terms of sense and self finding something that kind of resonated with your experience being a human being at that time and so when you're listening to these albums and Johnson I don't forget about you I know that you're there you just didn't bring it up as exclusively but I'm sure it's there um in terms of like sitting into that 14 year old self like do you remember at the time feeling a sense of 
importance or is this something that you're kind of looking back on and going, oh, wow, like that actually like meant something. It sounds like Denise, like it, you felt it at the time, but I'm wondering if like others kind of felt the, the impact at the time or if it's like a looking back, you recognize the impact. Yeah, it was a real visceral experience here in this Dead Milkman uh, for the first time, but the consequences of it kind of rolled out slowly afterwards. It was this sort of great opening that occurred for me. And so like I already said how it's like, oh, music could be more than what I had created rigidly for myself, listening to such a narrow range of music um, where listen to um, white working class metal and with, you know, it's violent and aggressive um, and explicitly misogynistic at times. And then um, listen to Dead Milk, you know, opening up the music could be a lot more things. And here again, they're, you know, addressing this white working class anger and alienation, but from a left-wing perspective instead of a, a far right perspective. The man in the White House who just don't care. He stars little kids and he dies with his hair. Now what could make him think that way? What could make him act that way? He's just a right-wing pigeon from outer space. Then to destroy the human race. But I think even more importantly, this way, this is sort of like a transitional album for me, the way that it opened me up to other things. I think of albums within the next few years that had a big impact on me, like uh, Bauhaus's Burning from the Inside or um, Jane's Addiction's Nothing Shocking, in particular, were showing me like new ways of, of expressing masculinity. Again, coming out of that explicitly misogynistic or aggressive and violent sort of masculinity from from metal, and then becoming like secretly enamored with um, uh, like the communards or dead or alive, um, erasure, and then uh, pet shop boys, and just be amazed like, oh my goodness, there's all these other ways of of being masculine at a time with you know this is before you know Ellen first you know kiss on television, you know the only explicitly gay thing you can see on television. I mean, there's like Levi commercial, and just really opened me up into ways of thinking about the ways of being in the world and and being being masculine. Um, that was uh, just fundamentally changed my sense of self. And I imagine there's there has to be this feeling of like opening when you find at 14 that there's something that taps into like not the mainstream, right? When like masculinity is advertised this way and you find something that's like, but it doesn't have to be. And it opens up this whole new world of, of being that I feel like at 14 feels so liberating to feel like this doesn't feel like me. Like, I like this music, but like, I'm not interested in being like Brett Michaels and like whatever masculinity he is advertising. But I'm really excited about what's happening here and what this opens up in terms of, of self-exploration. I don't, I don't know if others have the similar uh, experience, like Sheila thinking about the police opening up, you know, a bonding experience of like them speaking to you as a 14 year old. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting because I don't know if at the time, you know, Johnson, you were talking about like different representations of masculinity. I was certainly a big Pet Shop Boys fan, you know, loved Boy George, Culture Club, um, David Bowie, <laughs> you know. And, and so I guess to go back to your original question, Melinda, I don't think at the time I understood how it was affecting me. But, you know, now we're living in a world where we're 
some of us are beginning to be more open to the variance of what it is to be human, to be on the, you know, like on the gender scale. And it, it just occurred to me while you were talking, Johnson, that maybe I could go back and trace it to some, some of this music that I was listening to and loving and not even realizing that by connecting to it, I wasn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't judging it. You know, so I guess that goes to the power of pop culture, whether it's television representation of, you know, Will and Grace being on American TV. Um, and, and, oh, look, people who um, love differently are normal. Like, um, I think I said at the, at the very beginning that I really went on into like the Smiths, the Smithereens, a um, little bit of the Sex Pistols. <laughs> but, you know, there was, I was very much interested in this development of the social structure as well as the political structure that was going on in England, even though it was no longer my home. I think I became more English when I moved here. Like it was just so important to me to hold on to England. So I really paid attention in terms of what was happening there and politically as well as culturally in terms of music, film, like just social structures. I think it's that 14 year old I was sort of paying attention I didn't I didn't have a lot of friends I didn't speak up a lot but I was listening all the time and I was paying attention and I was making connections so I think all of those references sort of started to percolate and it took a while yeah. right it, it takes a while to kind of come through does it also foster a sense of connection with like others or was it like more frustrating because people were just talking about the music and like not thinking about the implications of the structure like was it an in or did it further kind of isolate you because you recognize like these jokers just don't get it. Oh, I don't think I was dismissive but I've always there's always been a part of me that just sort of lives in my head. So when we moved, we bought this house. And for whatever reason, there was no furniture on the first floor. My mother, for whatever reason, kept the television up in her bedroom. So there was this space downstairs that no one was using. And I just remember playing Synchronicity over and over again. And I would dance to it. So I would like perform ballets on, in this empty space. This is how I was spending my evenings. I... I, I don't know why I was doing that. <laughs> Maybe it was for something to do, but but I just remember like, you know, every breath you take or King of Pain and choreographing it and and just playing it over and over again and doing this sort of like in the evenings. Um, so it was like my time to sort of live in my space in my head. did it either but I did something very similar and I was like constructing I would listen 
to albums or music over and over again and like create like the music videos that I wish it would be like. And of course I was the star of all of them. Uh, so, you know, it was just like a way for me to like integrate myself into these narratives. But yeah, the, the, the room as like a, or whether it was your room or another room, a sacred space of play and imagination that like the music became the soundtrack for, I think resonates. And I, I hope that that still means true. I don't know if people just sit in their, in their rooms anymore and just listen. That space is so sacred to me and I don't, and it happened for so much longer than 14, but it was so significant. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. The Carpenters is both uh, Johnson and Sheila were talking because, you know, they're talking about how their albums really break from the structures. And what I find so interesting about The Carpenters is that they don't really break from the structures and, and thinking about how they were always kind of considered like pop music, but also like the effects of these like larger cultural issues, particularly on like Karen Carpenter's body, right? And the like conformity and non-conformity. Were you... It, kind of taking that in as a 14 year old or was this stuff thing that you were like processing in terms of their impact on you and these like larger issues or was it just like I want to listen to we've only just begun on repeat well I think the appeal of the album for me was comfort and the fact that the album is melancholy in melody but the lyrics are unrelentingly happy even songs about being lonely always end up with it's okay because someone loves me. For me, I think that was really what the appeal was. It was comfort. It was my playing at my mother's feet when I was three years old, all going around and around in my mind. And the fact that the Carpenters did not buck the trend in any way, they were seen as, as very much in line with, with popular culture at the time. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride. which for me met my personality because I did not want to grow up. I wanted to be a kid. I The rest of my friends were interested in maturation, exploring teenhood. I wanted to play with my stuffed animals and stay in my room. And I think this album enabled me to do that. 
And, and that's why the shock was so harsh. When I found out that Karen Carpenter was killed, it was my first real understanding of, of death. I'd never really known anyone who died. And even though it was a one-sided relationship, she was someone I knew who died. And also it was the idea that the innocence and comfort of childhood were taken away from me. So in many ways for me, it was the conformity of the album that I liked. It was safe, it was secure, and it was protected. What I've got they used to call the blues Nothing is really wrong Feeling like I don't belong Walking around Some kind of lonely cloud Rainy days and Mondays always get me Right, the intimacy that we build with these, these, these uh, albums and these artists that just like feel so deeply personal. Whether it is like the 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 comforting weighted blanket that kind of tells us that you know we're just cycling into something that like is part of our childhood or um, or leading us into these new terrains, right, of like who we could be and who we are. Um, when I did my I did my album on um, the Foo Fighters, Color in the Shape. But I didn't really feel at the time that the album impacted my sense of self as much as like opened up other things that dramatically affected me. Like it opened me up more to Nirvana and Baruch Assault and these like things that came out in the early 90s that I was not exposed to at the time. I guess like when you were 14, are you kind of recognizing who you're becoming while listening to the police? Like, do you feel like it's kind of ushering in this new version of you or maybe like reinforcing what's already there? I think for me, it was sort of choosing because in a way I was reinventing myself and I could be, I could be many different things, right? Because if you listen to an album that's called Synchronicity, it's not very synchronous. There's discord and there's there's like inks and there's some you know like the whole dinosaur song how do you explain that <laughs> 50 million years ago you walked upon the planet not of all that you could see just a little bit like me walking in your footsteps walking in your footsteps and so it was sort of opening up to like well who am i going to be you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning that I have a 14-year-old now, and I think one of the legacies of listening to the police is that is, is a remembering and an honoring of what it is to be the angsty 14-year-old and not to just roll your eyes because feelings are feelings, right? And they're real to you, and therefore you should honor that. And, and so I try. So I think that's one of the ways in which being maybe a little bit more empathetic, mm -hmm. it's sort of like seeped into my soul. It was all that ballet dancing music. <laughs> Probably should not have admitted that. Nope, this is what we're here to, to honor that, to honor every part of it. It's the same old thing as yesterday.
Johnson, I, I'm thinking of, it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but in your, in your discussion of dead milkmen and kind of seeing this other possibility of masculinity, right? So at that time, like, how does that function in terms of like having the mainstream say like, this is what this is and, and like kind of finding albums that, that detract, but in also kind of bucking mainstream convention, also having that tension between like, no, 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 that's not, you have to perform masculinity in this way. So it really wasn't Big Lizard that really challenged my particular sense of masculinity because there's nothing particularly unconventional about the masculinity of that, at least early, early dead milkman, but the thing that way it opened me up and then leading me to like those other albums, you know, like Bauhaus or um, Jane's Addiction or, or whatever, where, but I mean, which of course came very close on the heels of, of Big Lizard. And, and yet, so I ended up with this life of being always quite reflexive about being in the world and, you know, performing masculinity and, and recognizing the the, the choices and the, and the variety. So that was something I was always quite consciously uh, aware of. Features so fine, rouge and eyeline, things I fancy, just like Nancy. You know, I was thinking in terms of, of, of gender quite explicitly, as well as class, which I just couldn't avoid, you know, being like work class kid in a largely uh, middle-class school, there's things that were just obvious. You just couldn't, couldn't avoid it. And, you know, as a growing up in a steel town and during Reagan, when you know, the steel industry was collapsing, you know, people talk about Reagan's period as this like great economic boost. And, but for us, it was recession and economic collapse and the devastation of our town. And I carried this with me until, I mean, eventually, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a book about substantially about masculinity. You know, my um, it's I'm a historian, do uh, U.S. history, and and then when I was working on my dissertation, and I was looking at the Virginia Military Institute as this odd engineering school that popped up out of the middle of nowhere in Virginia, and I started looking at the historical the documents that they have from the institution. I said, "Wow, they keep talking about manhood," and I found that so fascinating. And so I ended up writing. You know, the 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 main title of the book is "Engineering Manhood." You know, looking at these, this engineering program, these engineers and crafting a particular sense of manhood, particularly of white manhood, and the way that they deployed that in Virginia politics before the, the Civil War. Um, and so it just sort of became what I do, even, even professionally. So I guess I can thank the Dead Milkman for opening me to that possibility. <laughs> I think when these questions come up, people think that it has to be like, well, this album oh, did everything for me ever. It opened up the space, it did that. But I feel like it just kind of, implants the question of like, maybe there's something else, like maybe there's something more, maybe there's a path that I can pave myself. Um, Denise, we've talked a little bit about the like larger infrastructures and maybe you referenced this, but did the carpenters make you like see the world any differently or was it really for you about like that comfort and that being in essence, what you wanted out of the world. Yeah, I think it was the exact opposite. The carpenters enabled me not to see the world. They enabled me to think of a world where everything is optimistic and perfect and sung in three-part harmony. It's yesterday once more. Now, when you, this is for everybody, when you hear these albums now, do you picture yourself as a 14-year-old self? Like, do you tap in to that, like, former you that's also still a part of you? Or do you just kind of listen to it 
and, and enjoy the music. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'll start singing and, you know, get weird looks. <laughs> and it's just, it's that abandonment of like, oh, right. You know, because I'm so far from 14 now. Um, I don't know if I'm cool, but a little bit more self-assured. But there's that, you know, that twinge of, oh, right. I remember this. This is, this is part of my story. So absolutely. Still remember the choreography? <laughs> if you gave me a moment properly. I, really I didn't prepare anybody for a choreographed dance, so that wasn't a part of it, but it's <laughs> um, I would love to see it. Um, Johnson, Denise? Until um, y'all invited me to do this and I thought about that album, I was really surprised that Big Lizard ended up being the one I, I chose. I haven't listened to it in years. And so yesterday and the day before, I started listening to it again as well as, you know, listening uh, to Jane's Addiction. Well, Bauhaus, who I've mentioned several times, I've just listened to them continually. I've worn out, I wore out three cassettes of Burning from the in Inside, and now I, I have two copies of the CD. I, I, wore, I, burned, I wore out a CD of, of it as well. I haven't listened to like Jane's Addiction or, or Dead Milkman for years and put it on and listened to Big Lizard and thought, oh, I would know, this is awful. <laughs> yeah, sorry to the guys in the band. Um, but, you know, there's some really offensive stuff on there uh, for one thing. Um, it's this really lo-fi garage band stuff, which was kind of cool. But, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I kind of grew out of it, but, you know, and that's okay. like opening for other things that like I feel like have infiltrated so like you can kind of divorce yourself from that particular album but it sounds like it led you on this like other path towards other stuff I'm in debt to it yeah Denise what about you I haven't listened to the Carpenters album in at least a decade so I pulled it out and listened yesterday and the first few songs, I thought, oh my gosh, this is just cringeworthy. It's so 70s. I can tell they're playing a harp. On the day that you were born, the angels got together and decided to create a dream come true. So I fast forward through the first few songs. Parts of it are quite cringeworthy, but other parts I can see what appealed to me and some of the beauty of the music. Long ago and oh so far away I fell in love with you before the second show And then I remembered as I started getting into it that the album gets better as it goes along and by about the fourth song I was singing so loudly that I had to close the door to the bedroom. <laughs>
in terms of uh, spreading the word of these albums, I I mean, Denise, you had mentioned that your mom had played this like over and over and over again. So she was like a fan. But did Sheila and Johnson, did either of your like parents get either sick of the album or was there like a moment where they were like, you can't listen to this garbage. I feel like there might be some room for that type of tension, but or stop dancing. Just read a book. So when I got that cassette from my brother's friend, I guess I, my, one of my, my mom must have seen seen the cover or something and it looked ridiculous. And what is that? And uh, probably wanting to know what was going on with her 14-year-old son, said, well, put it on. And all the whole family sat there and listened to it and laughed. I don't want to be on the beach now, but I don't want to be on the beach you know, beach song talking about the guy who doesn't want to go to the beach and how he fed his ice cream to a shark and now he's got nothing to eat. This is no way to spend the summer. I've got sand cake on my feet. I gave my ice cream to a shark and now I've got nothing to eat. Now fuck! So the family's just sitting there laughing along with this thing. I think my mother was probably relieved that it was something other than uh, heavy metal, which in the 80s, you know, was associated with Satanism and crime and was you know, this horrible thing that you didn't, uh, didn't want around. So I'm sure this was a great relief uh, for my mother. <laughs> Sheila, what about you? So, you know, I think one of the things that I realized is like how we listen to music has changed, um, or at least in my family it has, because when I was 14, we had one record player. So I guess if people were watching TV, they were upstairs in my mother's room. But if they were downstairs, they were listening to it. And I have to say, both my parents never censored anything we listened to or read. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think, I don't think it's because they were being super progressive. I think they were just busy. They were working, you know, they were putting food on the table. They were off onto the next chore. But do you remember the big, I think it was um, Al Gore's wife who, who came after Prince's album, Purple Rain. And my brother had it and he was playing it and we were just roaring and probably, I think that room was still empty. So we were still dancing around in that room, you know, our own private dance floor. And, and I remember me saying to my brother, you know, you're not, this is explicit. You're not supposed to be listening to it. But my parents didn't know, like they didn't look at the album. Plus, I think in some ways too, police, the police had been played on T on the radio in England. So my mother remembers them, you know? And so it was just like, oh, they're just doing their thing. So I guess we were thankful that our parents were just too busy to be paying attention. And we weren't bad kids, so, you know. We could get away with it. We could get away with it. We have like five minutes left. So the last question I wanted to to do, and I know that this is a surprise. So if you don't have it, if you don't have an answer to it, that's fine. But if you could recommend an album to a 14 year old, what would you be? So I'm currently um, mildly obsessed with Charming Disaster, which is sort of this indie band that's based in New York. I guess they market themselves as a cross between um, Edward Gorey and, and Edgar Allan Poe. Shouting at the windshield, rain is coming down. Just another day till the money runs out. Take a deep breath, it's all under control. Driving to Idaho. 
Hearing stories about driving to Idaho with a shovel in the back <laughs> or, or uh, Baba Yaga, I became slightly obsessed. And then my 14-year-old started listening to them and has shared it with their 14-year-old friends. And everyone's like, oh, you're so cool. How'd you find out about this? And I don't get the credit. <laughs> no, that, I feel like that is just parenthood summed up in a nutshell. Uh, Johnson, Denise, any recommendations? In the vein of sentimentality, as one who has a past with the Carpenters, oh so sentimental. I'm going to go sentimental again. Um, Adam Schlesinger died very, very early in the uh, COVID pandemic, died of, of COVID-19. He was the one of the two lead singers and writers in Fountains of Wayne. I live in New Jersey, big New Jersey band. If you don't know Fountains of Wayne, they deserve the honor because he did die of the pandemic. And I'd say Utopia Parkway is a good way to start with the music. I know this girl named Denise. She makes me weak at the knees. She drives a lavender Lexus. She lives in Queens, but her dad lives in Texas. like that resonated like when he died like there was just such a wave of grief that I didn't realize um how impactful Fountains of Wayne had been so yeah I think that's a great it's a great call Johnson I think it would be John Coltrane's Ascension so this is uh, jazz and it was one of the the peaks of Coltrane's uh, atonal dissonant period. So it's one of those things, you know, you hear it, you're either just going to immediately hate it, or you're not going to necessarily immediately love it, but you're going to think, wow, this may potentially be the greatest thing I've ever heard. And I think it is one of the great peaks of Western music. It is a challenging thing to hear. And I spent about two weeks listening to it twice every night thinking, well, it's Coltrane, I love him. So it's gotta be great, but I don't get it. That's my fault, not his. And I listened then one day it clicked because that's how music happens. We, our brains melt themselves to hear certain sorts of sounds. And this is atonal music, it's not what we're used to. And so it just takes some doing, but then it clicks and you suddenly, it's not atonal, there is harmony there. It's not arrhythmic, there is a rhythmic there. It's just not what we're used to hearing. And I think it's just one of the most unbelievable things that humans have ever created. I would love to have more 14 year olds listen to Coltrane, just love it. Or to show up more on, on my TikToks as I scroll through the night. Um, we are at time, but thank you to all those attended. Thank you to our panelists and thank you to the Adolescentia Project for giving us permission to use their format to talk about that music that meant a lot to us and our 14 year old selves. Thank you, that was fun. Thank you. Thanks everybody, bye-bye. Bye everybody. We've only just begun to live White lace and promises A kiss for luck and we're on Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik, with additional audio production by Noah Levine. 
All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. What are we talking about? Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about practice, man.